in the future, chances are if you're not a software developer programmer, you're not going to have a job in mobile ICT. Today we're going to be meeting with Richard Schwartz, who has a long-time career with some of the top names in software development. Uh, Richard, thanks for joining us today. But first, let's have a few words from our sponsors, Telecom Careers and Comscope. Comscope, thinking beyond today's technology to help you make the best decision for your network and your business. Telecom Careers, the number one global telecom and wireless job board. Telecomcareers.com. Joining Inside Telecom Careers. Today our guest is Richard Schwartz, longtime friend here in Austin and um, founder and CEO of Machine, which sold to Good Technology. Richard, thanks for joining us today. Good to be here, Jeff. Thank thanks you. for putting up with our technical challenges <laughs> while we got the show rolling, yeah. but uh, I think it's some, in some ways that uh, we could talk a bit about the challenges of software development and software Indeed. upgrades and that sort of thing. But uh, for today's discussion, we're going to talk about three areas. Number one, we're going to talk about the, uh, the recent issue in Bloomberg Business Week about coding. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, developing software developers, finding software developers. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, we're going to close by talking about your career, mm -hmm. having gone from uh, uh, research at uh, Stanford Research Institute all the way to founding machine and, and ultimately good technology. So why don't we just jump in. Um, and talk about the Bloomberg Business Week issue. They devote a whole issue on coding. Yeah. So what's your take on that issue, and wh what does that mean to you? Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, it, it was a really uh, interesting story and kind of a, a sweeping look at even what does it mean to code. Uh, mm -hmm. And I found that very interesting, and, and it resonated that many things we do without thinking about it actually involve coding. If you're in an Excel spreadsheet and you're using macros or even formulas, you're doing a kind of coding. Um, if you're an airline reservation agent and you're kind of trying to figure out how to get the transaction through and what codes to use, yep. you're doing coding. And I think that the definition of all of that is changing and the languages and tools are changing, but the fundamental techniques are not, not only important, but in this day and age, everything is becoming digital. Everything is online. So being able to do problem solving in that world is critical to the future and to the future as a uh, finding a job as well, by the way. And you were talking about the different layers of being in software development from yeah. architecture to code. Kind of give us a framework for discussion today. Yeah, so, so the article focused um, um, very much on the, the concept of coding or physically writing lines of code, which is part of it, but the larger piece of it is how do you know what to write for code? How do you know what design to use? How do you know what architecture should go behind it? Mm -hmm. And those are really the, the larger frameworks behind coding a software application. Right. All of those levels are important, and the skills are quite different as well. How dire is the need for software developers and coders today? Yeah, so we're making a, a transition, uh, first of all, from software development as uh, writing a mobile phone app or writing a network app to computing or some kind of smart uh, software mm -hmm. embedded in almost everything. 
So in many ways, although including chips, by the way, yeah. th that's correct, in including chips and smart devices and everything else. Mm -hmm. So software and building that intelligence in is ubiquitous. It's basically transforming everything to be digital, everything to be online, and everything to be connected. So it is fundamental. That doesn't mean everyone can do it or everyone should do it, but certainly the backdrop is, is pervasive. Well, some of the articles I've read talk about the demand for millions of coders over the next decade. You know, yeah. you started companies your whole career. If you were to start a company today in Austin or Silicon Valley or even yeah. Shanghai, how, how challenging is it to find the coders you need, in, in the, particularly in the context of telecom? If you're going to be connecting with networks and yeah. mobile phone operators or cable companies, there's some legacy things you need to know about. How hard is it to find people? Yeah. So particularly... Um, in telecom related, as, mm -hmm. as you said, Jeff, um, the hardest skill to find are two things. One, systems people, people with a systems understanding, uh, which is not so much about understanding whether they can code in Java mm -hmm. or code in C++, but can they understand the systems context in which the software is being created? Um, something about the architecture of the telecom network, the carrier infrastructure, the how to do a high scale or low latency, or where the code is running, or where the code needs to run. <laughs> and that kind of systems understanding is the hardest skill to find. It's easier to find people that can write code. It's harder to find people that can understand that bigger context. And a lot of the new applications, in answer to the question about uh, looking at new new systems and new applications, a lot of it is you can't find people that have an exact background in all of the pieces of the software that's being brought together. Mm -hmm. So you need people that are adaptable, that can learn, that can are flexible to extend their skills. That's a very hard skill to find and often it's something you have to nurture internally mm -hmm. from people that have part of that background but can be grown into the rest of it. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. We're going to talk in a minute a little bit more about uh, the people side, developing people. Yeah. But I want to jump back to the bigger picture in terms of um, how do you stay on top of, of the changes from the old C++ or C days to yeah. the Ruby on Rails, Python, Node.js. I mean, you've been through it all. Yeah. yeah. Lisp, et cetera, Swift. How do, you, how do you stay on top of that? And, how do yeah. you, and then we'll talk about how do you make decisions when you're launching a new yeah service or software development company, how do you make decisions about architecture, compiler, et cetera? Yeah. It's a good question. Um, first of all, the building blocks have changed a lot over time. Less about the programming languages, which by the way, have fundamentally changed, um, going from, as you said, a, a, a compile and debug model around C or C++ or Objective-C mm -hmm. to Java, uh, to web services. More critically, looking at the big building blocks, the frameworks, the pre-built applications and objects and web services that you call upon, looking to see what um, range of building blocks are available and how they apply to the problem you're trying to solve, mm -hmm. and constantly looking for things like that that allow you to take the next step, whether it's for scalability or major feature enhancement or global expansion. 
that for me is the, the hardest part, but also the most exciting part. And it costs fundamentally less because of those large building blocks to build and develop and release software today than perhaps a decade or, or more ago. Can you quantify that shift where you get to a point where you're looking at a new platform or a new architecture or a new language and you're saying, you know, I think this is ready. I'm ready to make this investment yeah. in this newest widget or whatever it may be. Can you quantify the 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 cost of savings and or time in terms of being able to uh, get that product to market or to take yeah. products to market? So there are a couple components I'd, I'd probably in include in answer to that. First of all, in terms of the language, the the move from compiled languages uh, like C or C++ to more interpretive environments mm -hmm. like Java um, can by itself be a 10x or more improvement. It can also lead to sloppy techniques. So with the right discipline, the right regime, the right testing methodology, um, the right management mm -hmm. behind that, that can be a fundamental improvement and leads to a lot of the agile programming methodologies and ways in which the cycle for getting out new updates and new versions can be dramatically decreased in time and therefore more responsive to what the customers are trying to do. Um, I would also say that the large building blocks, the frameworks, the um, web services, I mean, including uh, things like a, a Twilio, right. which in some sense is a, um, a major telecom advance in that with a single line or a few lines of code, uh, a mobile developer or corporate developer can all of a sudden embed um, text messaging into their application. Mm -hmm. There are similar advances like that where in a sweeping way, instead of redeveloping something, you can tap it right. and integrate it into your application. Mm -hmm. And that's probably another 20x. So they're <laughs> fundamental. Those are material. 10x, Those are material. 20x yeah. changes in cost and time. Yes. So with, in, in that backdrop, if you make a decision to go one way and all of a sudden something new comes out, how feasible is it to switch gears midstream? Yeah, so the, the issue is um, you've got to look carefully at what the advantage versus the cost is of doing that. Just switching to a new language because it's cool um, is probably not well advised. <laughs> the, the issue is what's the next step in what you need to get to, either in scale mm -hmm. or functionality or cost of delivery. Mm -hmm. And if a new language or a new framework can, can buy you that, then you want to invest and phase that. Mm -hmm. But doing it because it's cool or because you know it would be fun to learn, which sometimes happens, by the yeah. way, Jeff. You get excited. Um, yeah, you, you get excited. Yeah. So, everybody so, on the team's anxious to learn it. So bingo. everybody bingo. They're bingo. challenged. So, so I would always drive it by what's the business objective mm -hmm. and what's the fundamental advantage over what time frame for whether to do it or not. And then how do you get your investors comfortable with that decision? Yeah. I mean, are they able to stay up? I mean, you've got great investors, Tom Meredith and Mike Maples and some other folks, uh, some of the great West Coast investors. How do you get them comfortable that, hey, this is the right decision or this is the right platform that we're going to develop on going forward? Yeah. 
So the first thing is, is internally you've got to get comfortable that um, you, you picked a reasonable platform and you understand why. Um, and you can relate that back to either cost or time to market or scale or something else. Right. From an investor standpoint uh, as well, the issue is um, to be able to relate the funding requirements to getting to the next stage of growth. And if there's more money needed, does that give you a lift? Does it give you a leg up? Mm -hmm. And are you building any long-term negatives in by taking that choice? So it's really looking at kind of the bigger picture right. of um, does it help reach the revenue goals? Does it reach the next milestones faster? And are you building a long-term advantage or are you going to need to make another change? And understanding that and then working with the management in the company, working with the investors becomes part of that trade-off that at some level, you have to translate into business terms right. and not technology terms. Well, the second area we want to talk about, um, again, I'll go back to Bloomberg Business Week. They wrote an article two or three weeks ago about uh, having a college degree but not being able to get a job. And all of a sudden, these, these college graduates are going to these very expensive coding schools, whether it be for a month or three months for immersive software development training. Um, yeah. what, what's your take on, on, on those programs, those coding schools? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think that the most important skill, Jeff, um, is actually problem solving, not learning a particular language, but problem solving skills. Um, how do you approach a goal and figure out um, structuring a solution to it? How do you work through that? How do you go through a, a phased approach to delivering? How do you know if it works? How do you get there? And that kind of problem-solving skill is independent, very largely, mm -hmm. of particular languages. The language skills, um, if you can do the basic techniques, you can learn a new language and you can adjust um, what you've learned to a new environment. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. A, a quick story about that. Um, five or six years ago, um, uh, I worked with uh, uh, elementary school here locally as my son was in, uh, mm -hmm. I guess a little bit longer than that. Um, and I actually contributed a, um, a science day course for third through fifth graders mm -hmm. to teach them how to program from zero to writing their first application in an object-oriented language, which is a little game. Right. And then running it and getting that gratification. Mm -hmm. So literally introducing it at the time, it was a, a language called Logo from MIT, a precursor to what's happening now with Scratch, for example. Right. Sure. And what I saw was it was, it was um, pretty straightforward to getting the third through fifth graders to understand mm -hmm. the abstract concepts and then deliver it. Hard part for them was typing, by the way. Interesting. But that kind of problem solving and grasping, developing something and what the steps are is really the hardest part. So whether the, the coding schools do that or not, or they're teaching only the programming um, uh, process itself, I don't know. And that is that difference between coding and programming and designing and architecting that we mm -hmm. talked about. Well, um, in a minute we're going to talk about machine specifically, but I do want to take a step back and 
uh, come back to these coding schools, you know, what I see is you've got computer scientists coming out of the, yeah. the colleges, and they certainly know how to program, and I'm sure they know how they're very smart, uh, but they may want to do things that aren't what the company needs right away, the, the yeah. line coders, okay? Yeah. And then you've got business people or liberal arts people graduating from schools or, or coming out of high school that read what you read about Uber and Lyft and all these yeah. high valuation unicorns in the world, and they want a job in software. Yes. Um, for that group of people, do you recommend that they go through one of these immersive courses, spend fifteen or twenty thousand dollars, so at least they have some credibility and knowledge? So when they're dropped into a quote software development company, yeah, they got some credibility. Yeah. First of all, I think um, in this day and age, nearly everyone should have at least an understanding of basic digital tools and online tools and, and coding behind that, whether it's the use of WordPress to work on a web, website or add a blog, or um, it's some kind of techniques um, to uh, develop a style sheet mm -hmm. or something else for online. I recommend um, at least a social understanding of that, a comfort level behind that for everyone. And I do think um, whether it's a, uh, an enterprise or an agency or something like that, having those basic skills will open more doors. Got it. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Well, we've got a slide here that uh, kind of paints the picture of, of machine. Yeah. Okay. And, it, you know, it, it, the cloud of, of machine, I think we popped it up. Um, talk about what we're looking at here. And then as you, you were the founder of machine, maybe walk us through how you built your team and the specific types of people and skills yeah. you were looking for. Yeah. First of all, um, um, what machine was about was building a mobile cloud platform for connected devices. Mm -hmm. um, it was the beginning of a period where um, mobile wasn't just about phone and phone apps, but a lot of different kinds of devices to be connected to a telecom or cellular network. And the needs of each one of those was different. And the policies and the rules and even the pricing of data connectivity uh, had to be different for each one. So we built a cloud platform to handle that and allow so the had, rules. You got southbound connections to your yeah. customers, principally carriers. You got northbound the, to the applications. Talk yes. to us again in the context of building a team. Yeah. So you got a great idea. You grew, drew a great yeah. picture for your investors. You got it. But then you, you got to go do something. And, and so talk yeah. about the team and, yeah. and the roles. Yeah, so, so from a team standpoint, what was most critical, and we were very fortunate uh, in the machine period um, with the folks that we were able to get, both both co-founders as well as uh, hires after that, what was required was this kind of understanding, a, a kind of systems understanding. First, um, what it meant to connect to the carriers, what it meant to have cellular data and the implications of that but also what it meant to consume the data within um, whether it's a camera or a tablet uh, or other kinds of devices. So at once, really an understanding, which didn't exist prior because that there was no market. Nobody had any training in connected device <laughs> cloud services. On the northbound side. On the northbound side. Yeah. And on the southbound side, that wasn't what the carriers had really released the networks for. It wasn't what the billing systems were for. And in fact, even the way we were connecting was something that was very new. It didn't fit the pattern. Mm -hmm. 
So what, what, we year, hired, what year was that? 2010. Okay, so we're talking five years ago. Yeah. And, and it was before. into a carrier network, Bingo. and they really hadn't thought about this Internet of Things. Correct. And it really was the beginning of Internet of Things, although it wasn't called that yet. And it was sort of the, the branching out beyond the first machine-to-machine that was very narrowband. Mm -hmm. So we were doing broadband <laughs> connectivity for new devices and new applications and trying to figure out with the carrier how to interconnect with them and what business models made sense. And we had to hire people that in most cases didn't come out of a traditional telecom background. They might have ha had something in that environment, but also did some online or did some mobile app. We had to weave that together from the skills and a background and then team people together so they learn and cross-fertilize. Mm -hmm. So talk more about some of this. I think Glenda, as I recall, I came by yeah, your office uh, back exactly. in, I think, 2011. Yes. And Glenda came from MCI? She came from MCI. Oh. She came from Sybase. Okay. She came from Metasolve, BSS, oh, and sure, OSS. Sure, sure, yeah. So Does she that make knew, sense? Yeah, she yeah. knew the, um, the language to speak with carriers. Exactly. Now, was she a programmer, per se? Did she have an engineering background? Or was she more of the program manager, business person that could lead a process? So Glenda's background um, was engineering and product management mm -hmm. across many of those different technologies yeah. and delivering large-scale new software innovation. That was her background. Okay. Not so much programming, but understanding overall how to manage and deliver that, what the boundaries were, mm -hmm. and also this very complex issue of where do you hire people from and how do you grow what you need that didn't exist in the earlier market. Yeah. So earlier you talked about the need to find people that were good problem solvers. That's a given. Yeah. But then you said the harder people to find were people that had systems understanding. Yeah. Um, when you're interviewing somebody, how do you interview for systems understanding? Because everybody yeah. can learn the right words, yeah. but how do, you, how do you know you're getting the right person? It's tough, first of all. <laughs> the, the, the best hires, uh, are people that you've worked with before. Right. The second best are people that have worked with people that you're working with. So where there's some more in-depth understanding of what people actually do and what they're like in a group and how they think, um, how team-oriented they are, how flexible they are. In a pure interview process, it is harder. You, you kind of need to ask some off-the-wall questions which don't like what? Because um, you're going to flush me out pretty quickly if somebody <laughs> doesn't understand it. But what would be a question you might ask? You know, um, suppose um, you um, were trying to figure out, you know, this, uh, this Uber thing. I, I wonder what had to happen <laughs> in the network for that. Or, um, boy, um, they're going global. What do you think that involves? Or what do you think the scaling issues are of doing um, something like the mobile phone app? What do you think would need to happen if there were a million users of that instead of 5,000 or 10,000? Or questions that are actually looking to see how they can think through. Mm -hmm. Again, more of a a systems perspective or a limitation or what's involved. What you're looking for is their thought process. Mm -hmm. Not exactly what they know, but their ability to think on their feet 
and apply problem solving and pattern matching mm -hmm. from things that maybe in an earlier period was a different problem they had to solve. And what you're listening for is how they approach that mm -hmm. and how they might apply that in a, in a new context they hadn't thought about before. That's the skill that you really want to hire for. It. And it's a bit tough. Have you seen uh, seismic shifts or milestones over the last 20 years? Have you gone, you went from Borland to Vignette to your other company, Solomio and, and others. Um, have you seen shifts in the, the industry and shifts in the types of people? Radical, not just incremental, yeah. but material shifts. And if so, yeah. what were they? Yeah. Um, first of all, um, the, the earlier days, um, things were either an app mm -hmm. running on the computer, running on the mobile phone, or it was a website. And there was nothing else. It was one or the other. What you're seeing now is more of a distributed architecture, a distributed application where you might be running something on the device and you're running a backend or a set of backends that are talking to each other in the cloud. Mm -hmm. And what you have to architect, again, with the systems perspective, is how does that come together and how do you decide what to run where? A lot of the modern architectures, sort of mobile backend as a service and federated cloud architecture, you're trying to hide somehow what's happening where, so you're not so dependent on where it's running, either whether it's running on the device or in the cloud, or how many clouds or how they're talking to each other. And that's a seismic shift, not only in how it's developed, but in terms of how easy it is to scale globally into large numbers of users. It brings its own set of problems and challenges. Like but it's like, uh, um, like the fact that uh, it's great. You might be able to uh, bring in an analytics or a graphing or an e-commerce back end, mm -hmm. maybe in a, a few lines of code because there's some online service or web service that you can bring in. But you need to understand um, what the evolution is of that service or that application and how it impacts your delivery. Mm -hmm. So when there are revisions of that, do you have a way to control that so you know the impact? And what's the workflow behind that? Yep. So the kind of building in the large in that respect uh, is a huge leg up. That's the, the advantage that we talked about before, the 10x or 20x or 30x. The disadvantage of that is it forces more of that system thinking. Right. And again, puts pressure on the, having folks on your team that can think about that and anticipate the problems so it doesn't all come crashing down. So going back to the seismic shift, you, you talked about five years ago, the carriers weren't even thinking about Internet of Things, okay? Yeah. And you're, you're, you launch machine yeah. to create this cloud and federated capability. Yeah. Uh, how have the carriers, how has the carrier mentality changed yeah. in five years about the Internet of Everything and the, the demand to open up more network elements, to open up more yeah. of their BSS, OSS, which for, you know, what seems like a century was yeah. kind of behind the Iron Curtain, if you, you will. You got it. You got it. Yeah, I think um, with a combination of, of techniques, um, uh, open standards in the IN world, um, a, a set of other uh, APIs and web services, mm -hmm. uh, either from the carrier or from partners working with the carrier. Um, what's happened is, is the um, carrier is creating more services and APIs 
that allow the use of the telecom infrastructure and capability with a non-telecom interface. Mm -hmm. And so that opens up a huge uh, array of applications and development communities where people don't have to be a telecom developer in what used to be a closed world, but can still call on telecom services. And that's in fact what, what Machine was doing is uh, acting as kind of a, a gateway right. or a network platform for devices and rules that maybe didn't fit the telecom architecture mm -hmm. uh, uh, historically, mm -hmm. but can still be brought in in a way that doesn't break the OSS or BSS or um, uh, bring down the dial tone, if you will, uh, of the carrier network. And the, the carriers have, have um, been working on long-term uh, mm -hmm. evolution to open that up in a safe way, being careful of security and the scalability. And all that is kind of in an open systems world, mm -hmm. uh, new and, and uh, retaining the best of the carrier, but in a more open and flexible architecture. Okay. Well, let's move to the, the final area of discussion. It's really your career. Uh, maybe hit, walk us through some of the, the milestones. You have a PhD in computer science from UCLA. Yep. You went to Stanford Research Institute. Yep. Just walk us through some of the milestones, and then we'll get to the where does machine fit into good. But let's yeah. hit some of the high points. Yeah. So, um, yeah, my PhD is from UCLA. I was part of the uh, early ARPANET work. Yep. UCLA was one of the main centers of that. Um, and my, my research, first at UCLA and then at SRI, was on the development of new programming languages and looking to create techniques to deliver reliable software. So what kinds of programming languages and validation techniques could allow software in very high security or high reliability mm -hmm. context, you know, um, whether it's financial services or um, um, uh, airplanes that are running by, by computer instead of by the the pilot and control, nuclear reactors, how, how do those types of applications uh, function? Um, in that period of time, um, I, I kind of got the bug and started to work uh, with one of my research colleagues on what became a, a commercial database application, venture capital funded. Mm -hmm. And I left research, formed a company got venture capital, released a, a, a product uh, uh, first in the desktop days, right. and that was the Borland period. Mm -hmm. And then I kept going and did another uh, company in the online world, which became ultimately uh, part of Vignette, right. uh, and the first mobile applications. What year was that? Oh, boy. Not, um, not, we don't want to date ourselves too yeah, much. Yeah, I can't do that, man. Um, <laughs> Must have been mid '90s, okay. something like that. Yeah. And in the early 2000s, started working on the um, the first mobile applications and how um, mobile uh, can mean more than a, an application in a mobile phone, uh, and that involved more carrier interaction, right? More call control and IN, mm -hmm. weaving together text messaging together with phone calls together with mobile data, mm -hmm. um, and that led through the uh, mid 2000s, 2007 or eight, some work with right. OpenWave. And so um, you founded Solomeo yeah. in that period of time and that sold to OpenWave, is that right? Yeah, so my uh, first company merged with Borland yep. in the early days. 
My second company, Diffusion, partnered with Netscape, was acquired by Vignette, right. brought me to Austin. Mm -hmm. Third company was Solo Mio, um, which was formed to work with the part, uh, carriers as partners. The sort of early days of combining mobile data with call control for right. new services. Um, and then that led to machine in seeing later uh, Solomia was acquired by OpenWave. I was at OpenWave yeah, running right. and so forth. And what we started to see together with some of the other founders this is of- 2010 era now. Exactly, so now uh, fast forward to 2010, could start to see that the, the carriers had a very key asset with the cellular network for ubiquitous connectivity, but it was really designed around the phone. And now as more devices and the Internet of Things was starting to come, what we saw was the need for this cloud platform that would use the best of what the carrier could offer, but with a new platform to avoid the limitations mm -hmm. of what was designed for the phone era. And that's what led to, to machine, as we talked about. And at that point, was you talked earlier about narrow beam versus broad yeah. beam. Help people really understand how dramatic that was in, 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 in the way you set up machine. Yeah. That, that broadband mobile network that yeah. the, the carriers could, could leverage. Yeah, so, so broadband changes the rules and the economics. When you have a little trickle of uh, a few kilobytes or a megabyte or two per month, there are a lot of ways <laughs> in which you can organize and integrate. Now, where you have a, a pipe that might be used for, say, in a car, it might be used for a a few kilobytes for a sensor under the hood, but all of a sudden um, might be used for navigation on the dashboard right, right. or find a parking spot or the person in the back seat that wants to use a hotspot so they can connect their tablet. And the issue is that you have to find a way to control and harness all that from a trickle of bandwidth to a whole fire hose of bandwidth. The Texas flood. Bingo. There you go. Bingo. And somehow for the business models yep. and the pricing, because there's real money associated with opening that fire hose, and somehow business models and way to structure what's used and who pays for it and who pays for what part of it, that was really the probably the fundamental insight behind the machine platform and what we ended up uh, doing as a result. Does that make sense? Sure, absolutely. Terry, let's pop up the, um, maybe pop up the, uh, the machine picture to bring people back to the machine sure. cloud and, and show that for a minute. And then let's switch gears and show the, the good technology, uh, some of the yeah. statistics that we pulled up that I think uh, a, a good publishes in terms of uh, yeah. number of devices connected and that sort of thing. Tell us about good yeah. and then maybe talk about where machine fits into good technology. Sure. So, so, um, uh, machine was acquired by Good Technology mm -hmm. uh, late last year uh, in October. Um, Good Technology is one of the leaders, one of the market leaders in enterprise mobility management, right. which is really delivering for very large customers um, like financial services companies, banks, insurance, and like a whole suite of secure mobile applications so that the basic business applications can be protected and be can delivered and controlled, whether it's on a company phone or tablet or a BYOD device right. where the employee brings it in. Machine is now part of that substrate, part of the platform for good, 
to allow a lot of different devices to be connected and the tie-in back to the carrier. So the connectivity required for the mobile applications that are being deployed can be supplied or data included, much like uh, the Amazon Kindle, right. for example, did that for buying a book and having it downloaded. We're now doing that in the larger good context for mobility applications right. that are delivering. Right. That's the combination of machine mm -hmm. together with a good portfolio. And talk a little bit about your role um, as you moved into the good organization. You're now yeah. head of business, uh, carrier business. What, right. is that, what does that really mean? Yeah, what it, what it really means, I run the overall global business mm -hmm. for working with carriers, partnering with carriers, allowing the good portfolio to be resold by carriers as well as some of our products that have a deep connection into the carrier to enable this kind of data included mm -hmm. to perform. So mm -hmm. it's both around the software as well as the business development relationship. Okay. So Good had major market share with the, the enterprise. Machine yeah. had uh, in-depth relationships and connectivity to the, the carrier market. Um, yeah. As you, you kind of look at the business going forward, um, how do you see that, that business evolving over the next uh, you know, 12 to 18 months in, in general? Yeah, so. And, and actually I want to include policy. Where does policy fit, policy enforcement fit into this? Yeah. Would it be enterprise or yeah. carrier rolling out new services? Yeah, really, um, and, and this is back to um, the machine perspective, right? What machine was about doing was enabling each enterprise or each device manufacturer to set the rules about how the cellular network is used and how security is enforced mm -hmm. with portals and tools on their own right. without requiring the carrier to necessarily know or set that. So it was effectively exporting a kind of policy and allowing the specialization of that, the enforcement of that, on an enterprise by enterprise, device right. by device basis. Right. And the bridge between those two worlds is actually the machine connection. Right. What that leads to what mobile enterprise and mobile enterprise application means, mm -hmm. secure mobility means in this new environment. You can expect more and more blossoming of that. Does that make sense? Sure. So let's, uh, let's we need to wrap up here. And I kind of want to ask you the, 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 the last question, if you will. And, and it's, it's three parts. But okay, what three parts. Yeah, what <laughs> advice can you give to people looking for a career in software, looking to start a company? And I really think you have to break it down into three yeah. groups. Folks graduating from high school who may not want to go to college or have the means to go to college, how they might enter this, this fantastic world of software and technology versus someone coming out of a business school or, or with a general business degree or liberal arts degree, where you think they could find a home and then find the computer scientist graduates, whether undergrad yeah. or graduate level, where, what's the career path look like for each of those three groups? Yeah, first of all, um, th there, there are a broad range of those roles, um, ranging from a software developer to a product manager, a product marketing manager, a Marcom manager, right? where having a more detailed understanding of what the software can do, a little bit more about how it does it and what some of the constraints are behind it. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's someone that ends up writing the requirements 
and engages with the customer to translate what the customer use cases and stories are into how that relates to features in the product or going the other way and, and taking the fundamental advantages of what's been built and figuring out how to translate that into the marketing messages and the unique uh, value proposition. Yeah. All of those roles all benefit from having a, a more in-depth understanding of the software process and something about the architecture or marketecture of delivery. Is that, term? Is that in Wikipedia, marketecture? I don't know, but it should be. It should be. <laughs> Heard first here on Inside yeah. Telecom Careers. Okay. That makes sense? Absolutely. Well, Marketecture is important. It is important. <laughs> um, I know going back to um, uh, 1990, early in my career, I moved from commercial real estate development. I went to one of the world's largest uh, engineering construction companies and it was a fortune 50 company and i was not an engineer they threw me into a management development program and the yeah. very first project i have and this is when companies were moving from mainframes to pcs and you talked about that that yeah. interpretation so my job was to meet with the general managers around the world about what they needed for manpower forecasting and then work with a team of developers now there was the expert project manager who knew yeah. technically and i had to tell him the need yeah which we were in that at that point in time, all the discipline managers all around the world would fill out a sheet of their headcount and estimated hours by project they were yeah. going to be working. They would put them in an inner office memo to one man. On, his name was Howard. I won't say his last name, <laughs> but um, he literally would type those in to a manpower forecasting system on a mainframe, push a button, out would come the report. Literally 30 days after the discipline managers, the civil engineer, the structural engineers, yeah. et cetera, HVAC, sent the inner office memo in. So mm -hmm. our job was to develop a PC-based system whereby the discipline manager could pull up all their employees, assign them for up to 12 months or longer on a project, how many mm -hmm. hours a week or how many hours a month, push a button, all that information would be compiled, and then within a day, senior management could see what their forecast and manpower needs were on projects. And then we took hmm. projected projects from the sales team and were able to put hmm. a manpower curve together. That's great. So again, yeah. my job was to interpret. Yeah. And then once we built it, show it back to the general manager, say, is this what you asked for? And once they said yes, my job was to go around the world and actually train people on go. how to use it. But my point was, I never learned how to code but I could interpret yeah. and listen yeah. and document the requirements. And again, it's back to problem solving as the basic skill and the ability to apply that with some new rules in a new domain. Um, that's what all of this is about. Everything else will change. The languages will change. The devices will change. The use cases will evolve. The customer expectation will change. What's constant is what you said. And it's the ability to apply that and kind of anticipate and then pattern match. Apply lessons from before in a new world. Apply your experience to try to guess one step ahead and then validate and then translate between the customer, the developer, and so forth. So it's not only about writing code. It's about understanding enough about that and translating that into business. And that's what you were doing. Yep. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, folks, thank you for joining Inside Telecom Careers. Thank you.
Inside Telecom Careers is a production of RCR TV News. To reach Jeff Mucci or to suggest a show topic for Inside Telecom Careers, you can reach him at jmucci at rcrwireless.com. For all telecom-related news and information, please visit rcrwireless.com. To connect with the industry's top talent, please visit telecomcareers.net.